If you have a Bible with you, would you open it up to the book of Romans this morning? We'll be in Romans chapter 1. If you're new to New Hope, we've been working through the book of Romans uh, for the last seven weeks, and um, today we're going to get through, I think, verse 19 and 20 in chapter 1. Kind of excited about that. Um, Before we get into it, I want to remind you of what we were just talking about with communion, because it it greatly plays into what we're looking at this morning. Let me show you something from Matthew. It talks about the return of Jesus. Look with me on the screen. Matthew 16, 27, for the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels. Jesus said that. Those are his own words, and God can't lie. So God, God the Son, said, I'm coming back again. And when I come back, I'm coming to the power of God with the angels. Now, because he said things like that, Throughout the New Testament, after Jesus ascended into heaven, the writers of the New Testament picked up on that and realized we've got to keep telling people. The Holy Spirit moved them to remind people of this truth. You find it littered throughout the New Testament. So when you come to a book like 1 Thessalonians, you find things like this. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus And when he comes, he does something who rescues us from the wrath to come. Somebody say amen to that. That's God saying there's a rescue, a rescue from the wrath to come. Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. The the wrath of God most individuals think about is they think of the the one day of wrath. And we'll look at that in Acts chapter 2 when we get there. Paul talks about the day of God's wrath. That's a future event at the end of the world's history. There is a day of wrath. But what we've been seeing as we've been working through the book of Romans is that there is a wrath that's being revealed. The day of wrath, that's when God in all his holiness is going to put his awesomeness on display. And he's going to reveal his wrath from heaven that way. But there is a wrath being revealed, presently revealed, we're told according to Paul. So go with me into verse 18 of Romans chapter 1, but here's what I'm going to ask you to do before you start reading it. We need to ask God to give us eyes to see. I need to ask that. So would you pray with me just for a moment before we read that verse? Father, we are tempted to do this in man's ability, but what we're asking for is your capacity. So we're asking that you visit us now with the power and the presence of your Holy Spirit. And I I recognize, God, that your Holy Spirit is here because your people are here. But what I'm asking for is a special presence in which you allow us to see things we can't see on our own. Reveal things to us, Father. Show us truth and connect that truth with our lives so that we might respond to what you reveal to us. Father, we pray for this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed, being revealed, it says, it's present tense, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Two weeks ago, we landed on the definition for wrath from God's perspective, and you'll see the definition on the screen. Here's what wrath is. God's active opposition to everything opposed to him. There are things opposed to God. 
And God is opposed to those things. And he takes active opposition against that. That's what wrath is. Uh, We're being told that in relation to that wrath, God is revealing it. You might remember the analogy that I used a couple weeks ago, if you happen to have been here. We're talking about um, a pot of food cooking on a cooktop. You come home from whatever you've been doing and you see something cooking on the cooktop and there's a lid on it and you're wondering what's cooking inside. So you naturally take the lid off to see what's inside. You're taking the lid off is the same word that's being used here, the reveal. God's taking the lid off what he's doing, that he's revealing. He's taking the lid off, showing this wrath against ungodliness, against unrighteousness. What is that? Because we didn't get into that last time. What is the ungodliness and the unrighteousness? Those are products of a faulty relationship with God. And what you'll discover in the next couple weeks is that Paul clarifies from verse 19 to verse 27 what ungodliness is. And then from verse 28 to verse 32, he clarifies what unrighteousness is. But just so that we understand it this morning, what is this? Ungodliness is a lack of devotion, a lack of worship of the true God. And what that does is it leads to false worship of all forms of false religion. That's what he unfolds for us as we get into verse 20 and 21 and 22 and 23. Well, what's unrighteousness? Unrighteousness is the result of ungodliness. Because a person who's ungodly can't help but be unrighteous in their behavior. Naturally, they're going to do that. So ungodliness leads to unrighteousness. So if I've I've lost you on that first part, catch this. Mankind cannot act. I'm talking about fallen man, people not in relationship with God. Mankind cannot act righteously because they're not rightly related to God. So let's bear down into ungodliness just a little bit. I've got like four Greek words. I normally only give you like one, but there's a bunch of them, and I'm not even going to apologize for it. But I need you to see this first one because it helps us to understand ungodly. It's in your notes also if you pulled them out of the bulletin this morning, but look on the screen. Ungodliness is this. It's, it's this godless lack of reverence or lack of fear for God. The, the Greek language interprets it as wickedness. Now, immediately, when you and I start thinking of immoral behavior or wickedness, we begin thinking of people who exhibit their rebellion against God. You think of the guy who's standing in the wife beater t-shirt who's just pounded his woman into the ground, and now he's sitting in a jail cell because he got caught. It sounds pretty wicked. Or, or our mind goes to the guy who owns a pornography website. We're thinking, whoa, that's pretty wicked behavior. But rarely when we hear that do we think of the average Joe who's just kind of living his life as though everything's good, but internally there's this rebellion going on inside like, I know you're there, I don't care. Now, no one would say that, typically. Most people wouldn't say that. But they're living like it. Wickedness, this godlessness, is a lack of fear of the living God. Now, you combine that with this next word, unrighteousness, and we begin understanding this is a byproduct of the lack of fear of God. Unrighteousness is this word, adikia, and it's a legal term. It it comes from the court systems, and Paul incorporated it into this writing, and it's the word for injustice. It's the action of not behaving justly. 
So we understand this byproduct of the lack of fear of God leads people to a lack of justice for society, for the people around them, in their behavior. So let's put those two pieces together. How do we understand this? Well, history will back me up on this. History demonstrates that nations and people who forsake God lose their moral bearing and they lose their compass and therefore their actions become twisted and corrupted. How do we flesh that out? Logically, we expect people to be outraged by injustice. We expect people to be outraged by evil. But what about when a society is no longer outraged by evil? What about when a society is no longer outraged by immoral behavior? What does that say about the hearts of the people? What's going on there? Rather than me amplifying it, I'll lean into a theologian I really respect, Dr. Richard Trench. I want you to see his quote on the screen. He said this back in 1983. There can be no surer or sadder token of an utterly prostrate moral condition than not being able to be angry with sin. It's quite a condemnation. You know what individuals in your life who really have a struggle identifying what sin even is and being angry with it? When a person or a nation loses its moral compass, it loses its capacity to be outraged against sin. And this is what it looks like. They begin calling right wrong and wrong right. And leaving in its wake is a confused, disoriented, upcoming generation of young people who are trying to put the pieces together like, okay, is there anything that's right and wrong? Is everything according to my own definition? Is everything kind of gray matter? Paul says those individuals who are carrying out that lifestyle, they're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. If you look at verse 18. So how do I understand that? It's always humorous to me to think that what humans think they can suppress, God is going to say, okay, you're going to suppress it? I'm going to take the lid off from it. I'll expose it. One of the most stinging rebukes you will find in the entire Bible is when Jesus is talking to a group of Pharisees. And he said to them in Luke chapter 11, Woe to you! A bad day when God says, woe to you. He says, woe to you, for you have taken away the keys of knowledge. Now, that may not sound like such a stinging rebuke to you, but the Pharisees had been entrusted with the responsibility of leading the nation into the truth of God, who he is and his holiness and his glory. And God is standing there saying, you have taken away the keys of knowledge because of their aberrant lifestyle. So he brings a stinging rebuke against them because instead of championing truth and leading them to God, they're leading them away and they're suppressing the truth and ultimately they applaud the devolution of the society around them. Why would they do that? We've already said what ungodliness and unrighteousness is and we've said ungodliness is wickedness because wickedness by its very essence denies truth It can't do anything other than move in the opposite direction away from God, ultimately dragging others with it. So left to the will of fallen humans, God says truth is suppressed. 
Therefore, this is a happy note, therefore God burst on the scene and he reveals truth and he redeems some and he sends them out in the power of the Holy Spirit to share the truth with others. The redeemed who have that awesome responsibility is us. We're the people who just lifted the cup. We said, we're the redeemed of the Lord. I believe this. I own this. Jesus is coming again. God has redeemed us. He shares truth with us. And he sends us out in the power of the Spirit to bring that truth to other people. Let's go forward into verse 19 so we understand this wrath of God thing. Because keeping this in context, we're talking about the wrath of God being revealed from heaven. Why, logically, people ask. Paul answers the question. Because... Verse 19, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. If you're a person who doesn't mind writing in your Bible, you might write above the word known or know the word knowable. That's a better translation, actually. Obviously, you and I cannot know everything there is to know about God. I've been known for saying this, I, I think when God handed us the Bible, he gave us like the third grade version, right? It's like, here, chew on this for a couple thousand years. I, I, I read Paul and, and he says, we look now through a mirror, like a glass dimly. Everything's got like a fog on it. We don't understand, but there's a day coming when we will know fully. Here's the point. That which is capable of being known, apart from the Bible, as you'll see in just a minute, that which is capable of being known is indeed known. So this is a really sweeping statement that Paul has just made. He says humanity, all of humanity across the entire globe stands under the wrath of God because they ignore what they know, not what they don't know, but because they ignore what they do know. So here's what I hear God saying. It is characteristic of man that he knows much more truth then he translates into response. You want to hear that again? It is characteristic of man that he knows much more truth than he translates into response. Now, you'd have to agree, Paul is wading into some really deep water here, right? He's kind of dragging us along with him. And it's a very captivating discussion, and you're going to find it incredibly relevant to 2016, this day that we live in supremely, first and foremost, just say amen if you agree with this, God is absolutely just. Okay, we've clarified God is just. So that means he would never, he would never bring condemnation unless it's deserved. Because we just declared he's just right God. So if he's bringing wrath, there must be a reason for it. Let's get back to this sweeping statement in verse 19. He says, because that which is known about God is evident. God made it evident. He's talking about creation here, natural creation. He says the evidence is there and it's plain. So we're we're gonna talk about God's big reveal here for just a minute. What I want you to see on the screen are these four forms of his revelation that are just mentioned there in verse 20. We're, We're being told here God's justified in his wrath because of the revelation of himself. Let me show you the first one. The first thing that we see in verse 20 is that it's well-defined, it's very clear. The word evident indicates that. God's saying it's right there, it's right there in front of your eyes. Number two, he says it's understood. What does that mean? That does not stop with perceiving. You don't just see something. You contemplate it. You consider it. 
and you arrive at a conclusion. That's what it means to understand something. Number three, it is a constant evidence. Go all the way back to creation, the Garden of Eden. Paul's saying, it's right there. It never deviates. It never drops off. It's a constant witness since the beginning of time, since the creation of the world. And the fourth one here, it's limited. God has revealed certain things about his attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature. If you want to understand God's grace, you've got to look at his word. You've got to look at the lives of those who are believers to understand grace. But he's revealed certain things in creation. Verse 19 says, God made it evident. Here's your third Greek word if you're keeping track. The next one is the word phaneros. Phaneros is the word evident. It it means something that is publicly extremely external, highly visible. God's put it out there. Now, it, it actually uses the word shining. If God made something shining, is it not reasonable to say that that should be really apparent to me? There must be things that I can identify that he speaks of. Well, Paul's going to specify the content of what this revelation is. Go with me to verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, and now he lists the two attributes, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Again, if you don't mind writing in your Bible, I would write right there, God wants us to know him. He does. God wants us to know him. He's not hiding. So he begins revealing. He's taking the lid off. How does he do that? Through the light of natural creation. How how do I see that? How do I help other people see that? Paul's argument is there are attributes of God which can be perceived. His eternal power, meaning omnipotence, Friday night, if you came over to my house around midnight, you would have found me outside laying on the grass. My family didn't know I was out there. They were all asleep, right? But I went outside to stare at the sky. Now, first what I did is because it was incredibly black night, just a black canvas. I began looking, and then I just started talking out loud. Now, I know you're going to think I'm weird, but this is what I did. I said, God, I I see your Big Dipper, right? Kind of weird, huh? And, and then I said, wow, look at your Milky Way. And then I said, look at Venus. It was just glowing out there. It just captivated me. So I thought, this is a great night to watch for shooting stars. So I just laid down in the grass midnight, and I'm just staring up at the sky because this is the week in August when the meteorite shower takes place. If you didn't know that, you might be interested. Thursday night this week is the culmination of the meteorite shower. So between like nine in the evening and three in the morning this coming week, this coming Thursday, there's supposed to be 200 meteorites per hour entering our atmosphere. That'll be a show, right? The heavens display the glory of God. And we're also told his divine nature can be seen. First we see his eternal power, now we see his divine nature. What's that? Well, one of his divine natures is his ability to provide for you. His provision. Here's an example of that from Acts. Acts 14, 17. He did not leave himself without a witness in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. The Bible argues God's good. Look at what he's giving you. 
God's natural revelation of himself is not obscure whatsoever. He's exposing himself through creation. And Paul says it can be clearly seen. So God says he can show himself clearly. How about if we take him up on that? I think this is going to be really encouraging to your heart as we get into some data, some interesting facts. What, just starting off very simply, what do we see today that also the ancients saw before us? Very simply, the ancients could see a small seed put in the ground which became a massive tree. How do you explain that? Pretty awesome. What about what else they could see? What They could witness the wonder of human birth. How cool is that? Or the magnificence of a sunset. And what about what we just talked about? The nighttime sky in which God shows us a spectacle unlike anything else that man could ever see. Beyond my comprehension that night after night after night for millennia, God pulls back the curtain and says, here I am. Do you see me? Am I not awesome? Look with me on the screen. Do you see Psalms 19.1? The heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. When we begin talking about outer space, I personally need perspective. So I, I discovered when I was in flight school in college, working my way through an aviation degree, that I really needed things that were concrete to help me understand things that were ethereal. So when I begin talking about things that are millions, billions, and trillions, I need something a little more solid to help me understand that. So when I think of things like million, I can put this in context. If I said a million seconds ago, that would be 12 days ago. If I said a billion seconds ago, that would be March 8th, 1981. If I said a trillion seconds ago, that would be 29,700 B.C. Whoa. Puts the national debt in perspective, doesn't it? Okay. All right, so I get these big numbers in my head. Billion, million, trillion. So let's start out simply here. Planet Earth, 25,000 miles in circumference. Yet this planet, which is so giant, spins at 1,000 miles an hour. No wonder things get off kilter here sometimes. We're spinning in space. Yet with absolute precision, at 60,000 miles an hour, we travel 568 million miles in 365 days. Every year, the exact same orbit. Now, if that's not boggling enough to my mind to begin understanding something called the speed of light, I'm told there's a thing called the speed of light, and light travels at 186,000 miles per second. If you could travel at that speed, it would take you 125,000 years just to get across the narrowest part of the galaxy that we live in. How do I grasp that? Okay, let's step it up a notch. If you could travel at that speed, I want to show you an image on the screen of Canis Majoris. Now, there's a benefit to those of you who chose to sit in the front of the auditorium this morning because you can see a little dot in the middle of the screen. 
And, and you could tell the rest of the church what they're looking at, so maybe next week you want to sit in the front of the church too, okay? All right, so the little dot in the very center of the screen, the tiny little pinpoint is the sun of our solar system in comparison to the biggest star in our galaxy called Canis Majoris, otherwise known fondly as the big dog. It is so big that even 3,000 light years away, it can be picked up on the space, space telescope Hubble. How do I grasp the size of that? If you know what a quadrillion is, seven quadrillion Earths can fit inside it. That makes no sense to me. I can't really understand that, so here's what I can understand. If I could travel at the speed of light, and I could actually arrive at Canis Majoris, and I jumped on a jet plane, and that plane was traveling at 600 miles an hour, if I wanted to fly one time around that globe, Canis Majoris, at 600 miles an hour, it would take me 1,100 years. How awesome is our God who says, I breathe stars out of my mouth. He's called the star breather in Scripture. That's the macro. Let's look at the micro. Just one more thing for you. Go down to the very, very small infinite, what, what, what we would consider the smallest that we understand on this planet that we can see, and that's insects. That I know there's the sub-micro, the, the, the little atoms, but we can't see those, but I can understand an insect. Uh, among the insects that are just on our continent alone, we're told by the U.S. Natural History Museum that there's 10 million different forms of insects right here on United States soil. One of those that I love is called the bombardier beetle. I like this little guy. He's cool because he can shoot out explosive devices from his body, right? Okay, so the bombardier beetle, what you're looking at coming out from the bottom of him is a spray. It's a chemical spray. Uh, he was built in such a way that he has two chambers within his body on the back side. And those two chambers hold two different chemical compounds. When those chemical compounds are mixed with oxygen, they explode. How can you understand that in terms of evolution? It's hard for me to grasp how I wouldn't want those devices evolving within my body because that could be dangerous, right? But contained in separate chambers, I'm beginning to track that maybe this is designed that way. Very interesting. In the early 1800s, there was a craze going across most of Europe and part of the Western world here in the United States, and it was known as beetle collecting. Individuals went out collecting beetles. Charles Darwin was fascinated with it. He, he participated in it as a young man. And so commonly on their weekends, they would go to local parks and begin picking up beetles that they discovered. Well, one particular day, Charles Darwin saw a beetle that he had never seen before climbing up the side of a tree, and he grabbed it with his left hand, only to realize at the same time there was another beetle he had never seen before underneath a piece of bark. So he took what was in his left hand and popped it in his mouth to hold it, right? So he could use his left hand to pull the bark away and his right hand to grab the beetle that was still on the tree, not realizing he had just placed in his mouth a bombardier beetle. God's sense of humor, right? 
Why does God reveal these things to us? Why does He give us these glimpses? So we would know Him and bring glory to Him? It is unimaginable that such majesty and such power and such intricacy could be developed by anything other than design. Uh, perhaps if you're a person of science and you think maybe the science and the Bible, they don't mesh together too well, I, I would like to refute that with you just by taking you to one of your own, a, a person who is a scientist who says, now, I, I want you to look at this from a different perspective, a match of the science and the Bible. Dr. Robert Jastrow was the leader of NASA's Goddard Institute in the 1970s and 1980s. I found out in the last service that one of the individuals who attends here studied under Dr. Uh, Jastrow. And, and I want you to see a quote from him. He's an astrophysicist who served at NASA at the time that the Big Bang Theory became so predominant that it couldn't be argued any other way than the explanation for the arrival of what we have today. Let me show you his quote on the screen. The astronomical evidence supports the biblical view of the origin of the world. I imagine he got a lot of flack for that statement, but watch what he says next. The essential elements in the astronomical and biblical accounts of Genesis are the same. Consider the enormousness of the problem. Science has proved that the universe exploded into being at a certain moment. It asks what cause produced this effect. Who or what put the matter and energy into the universe? And science cannot answer these questions. For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to co conquer the highest peak. And as he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been there for centuries. <laughs> I appreciate a scientist who's willing to say it that way. God's word and science support each other. So Paul says we're without excuse because we have great, great knowledge for which we have much to answer. Our generation is the most privileged to ever walk this planet in terms of knowledge and information available to us. Can you imagine what it would have meant to Alexander the Great to fly? What would Copernicus have done with the space telescope Hubble? What would Napoleon have done with a cell phone? I'm just saying, we got things available to us. How inexcusable are we? We have opportunity to know God far beyond anything that the ancients ever enjoyed. We have so much more available to us. Just start with this. We have the complete word of God. And in that word, he's revealed himself and calls Jesus the image of the invisible God. I don't need to answer this and you don't need to answer this. I just want you to ponder this question. As a result of the superior advantage that we have, how have we improved? Do you sense as you look around your neighborhood, around this globe, that people are moving closer to God 
or further away. We've gained more information, but are we using it to bring God glory or are we using it to refute him? Let's bring this to a close here by looking at the last part of verse 20. He says there's something that can be understood through what has been made, being understood through what has been made. This word that's used, last Greek word, specifically applies to you. It's a very personal word, and God used it in an intimate way. Through what has been made is a phrase in the English language. It's represented by one word in the Greek language. I want to show you the word on the screen, and I'd love for one of you just to tell me what English word it reminds you of. Look with me on the screen at that word, poema. Somebody just yell it out. What does it remind you of? Poem, yeah, poetry. Poema is the Greek word which gives the basis of the meaning to the English word poem, a product, a, a fabric, that thing that is made the workmanship. Well, to have workmanship, there must be a worker. There, there's only one other place in the entire Bible that that word is used. I need to show you that verse. Ephesians 2.10. For we are his, answer it, church, workmanship. We, we are his poem. We are his poema. You are a poem. God says you are the fabric of his design, and he's written a poem upon you, and it sounds like this. Here I am. Look around you. Look at how I built you. See, the heart of God desires fellowship with those whom he created. So, when that which he purposely reveals for our profit, for our knowledge to know him, is suppressed, it is the greatest offense to him to rebel against God's self-revelation is to incur the result of that rebellion is called wrath because God is opposed to anything that's opposed to him, especially those that have the evidence of saying, no, I know you're there and I don't care. I see the evidence. I'm not willing to go there. Seeing the complexity of creation carries with it a massive responsibility. It's called belief. Some of you have arrived at that already. You'd say, I'm there. Problem, especially for us who are there, we believe, but we forget. We forget what Titus 3.3 says, that those individuals who are in our neighborhood who are not there yet, they're now like what we used to be. Look with me on the screen, Titus 3.3. We also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lust and pleasure, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. You find yourself in that statement? You just gotta look at the different phrases. Deceived, yeah. Hateful, lust, 
full of envy? It doesn't take long for a person to find themselves in that statement. In every age since the dawn of time, man has had sufficient opportunity to attain knowledge, the knowledge of God, because God's doing some skywriting. He's writing across the sky, here I am, please pay attention. So non-believing man has no defense Not because he has no knowledge, but because he refuses the knowledge he has. So no person can claim ignorance. Meaning, therefore, no person can claim God's wrath is unjust. How dare he? He's a just God. And he would never do anything unjust. He's a righteous God. So how do we respond to this? If you're finding yourself in a place where you're not there yet, maybe you're not a believer yet, and for those of you who are church people, it might surprise you every weekend at New Hope, there's individuals who attend who are trying to investigate, trying to understand, check this out. And and there are individuals who would say, I'm not there yet, Mark. Here's my encouragement to you. Just speak with me. Talk with our elders. And, And we will listen It won't be preachy, it'll be discussion. If you'd like to dialogue about these things, I'd be honored to do that. I've got resources I can equip you with. If you're a believer, how do you respond to this? This is an admonition for you. Please study, research, become people of science. I'm not telling you to get a degree in science. You don't have to become a scientist. But study these things that we've looked at this morning. These are available to you. You can study them yourselves so that when you go into your neighborhood, into conversations, into your work environment, you can speak confidently about the things that you know because you've done the investigation. You've done the work. Spend time because humanity is worth it, is it not, church? We, we are equipped with knowledge. The greatest piece of knowledge that you have to you right now, you're already equipped with. It's already there. You understand Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. There's no bigger story than that one. Let me remind you of that verse again. Look on the screen, 1 Thessalonians 1.10. Wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus, who, what? Rescues. If he rescues, there must be a reason to rescue from the wrath to come. I want to pray with you right now that God would seal this deeply in our heart, that we would do what we just prayed about in the beginning, that it would it would be translated into action. Let's pray that way. Father, I pray for these men and these women and these students who are so diligent about looking into your word and coming here and surrendering their time. Thank you, God, for what you have revealed to us. I pray that in the power of the Holy Spirit, you would allow us to take this information and translate it into action. Make us bold on your behalf. We pray for this in Jesus' awesome name and all God's people said amen have a really great week